But we are kicking off a brand new series this morning called Speaking God from Scratch. And uh, I just got to say, I think words and phrases are weird. They're, they're strange. We say things without thinking about uh, what they actually mean or the origins or where they came from all the time. And just because I'm a nerd and I enjoy this kind of stuff, you'll have to... Uh, deal with me for the next couple minutes, because I, I had some fun discovering some of the reasons and the origin stories behind these phrases and things that we do this last week. So uh, how many of you guys do like a white elephant gift exchange around Christmas, uh, like white elephant or Yankee swap or uh, whatever, dirty Santa, nasty Santa, whatever it's called too. You can do that kind of thing. People bring in gifts and then people like sort of fight for the best gifts. And there's always that person that brings like the old pair of socks or the shirt they're wearing earlier in the day like Creed Bratton from The Office or something like that. Uh, but it's, it's always like this funny, funny, ridiculous thing. And I actually found out why we call it white elephant. And I'm sure you guys are going to be fascinated to know that in Thailand in the 12th century, white elephants were these like almost mystical, mysterious creatures. They were very rare, but they were used as gifts to honor royalty and to uh, share with wealthy families in Thailand. And they were like really beautiful and small when they were given as a gift, but it was kind of like a backhanded gift to people because, of course, it's like cute at first, right? It's kind of like a dragon. Uh, but it gets bigger, and there's no place to keep them, and then nobody can actually afford uh, feeding the white elephant. So it ended up being like this backhanded gift. And that's where we get the idea of a white elephant gift exchange. You know, that's worth the price of admission uh, this morning, right? Uh, another one, just because we're living in the time of um, pandemic, uh, I found this interesting. Do you guys know why we say God bless you or bless you when somebody sneezes? And we don't even really think about it. We just kind of instinctively just say it, just part of our language lexicon. Oh, bless you. God bless you. The reason why, it can date back to the bubonic plague, and the Pope at the time, Pope Gregory I, said, and he, uh, he led an edict, a, a decree for all Christ followers in the Roman Catholic Church at the time, that you need, whenever you see somebody sneeze or cough, you need to say, God bless you, because that will bind you from receiving the bubonic plague. I don't think it actually worked. It was a great sentiment. We keep doing it today, but the next time somebody says, bless you, I want you to think about Pope Gregory and the bubonic plague, right? But that's why we do this kind of thing, and I think there's tons of phrases that we use uh, things that we do all the time that we don't really think about, what are we actually saying when we say it? And that's the heart behind this series. Uh, I, I was thinking about it about six months ago. Like There are all these Christian-y, religious-y words that we use all the time that we don't really even know what they mean, and they've kind of lost their potency, their power, um, because we just sort of use them like catchphrases. And uh, we dreamed up this series, uh, Speaking God from Scratch, because what we want to do is we want to go back to the source. We don't want to throw away these sacred ancient words. We actually want to pick them up, and we want to pick them up and put them in the right context. And we want to tear off all the religiosity and all the Christianese around them and get to the core of what they really mean. Because I believe that if we understand these words correctly and we place them properly in the context of a life well lived, uh, we live a life that our Heavenly Father created us to live. And I'm also excited because this series is for anybody. This series is for people that grew up in church. I was a church kid that grew up in church. Just personally, I was in church Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, filling up a pew, which, by the way, be grateful you don't have to sit in pews, right? Sidebar to the next thing. Uh, but like, I was always a church kid, and uh, you would walk into the, the building, the church, and it was like we were speaking a different language than I would hear uh, the other six days of the week. I mean, people were talking about being sanctified and being poor, like having the blood of Jesus all over us, which sounds really gross and really weird. And it was like everybody's speaking Christianese all the time, and the rest of the world didn't speak like that, but it was like a secret code that I understood inside of church. And this series is for anybody who grew 
grew up in church, who was, uh, you know, had church all over their life and the way they thought about the world and the way that they spoke. It's for you because we're going to look at what these words really mean. This series is also for people that don't consider themselves uh, religious at all. And maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you got drugged to church this morning. I'm dragged to church. I guess drugged works too if somebody drugged you to get you here. Uh, you, won't be, you won't be awake 10 minutes in my talk, but you were drugged here. But maybe you got dragged here by a boyfriend, a husband, a wife, something like that as well. And this series is for you too, if you don't really buy into the whole Jesus thing, because I think you'll have a clearer picture of what Christianity is all about, who the person of Jesus is all about. And these words that are just sort of part of the American religious background noise, you'll actually have a better picture of what they mean. And I hope you'll lean into the truth of those things this morning as well. So this series is for everybody. We're going to, you know, carve out the junk and the religiosity around these words and get back to the source to understand um, what these sacred words, these ancient words are all about. We're going to learn how to speak God from scratch. Now, the word we're going to dive into as we start our series this morning is a big word. It's a foundational word in following Jesus, a foundational word in the Bible. Here's the word right here. Faith. Yeah, that's a big one, right? We sing about faith all the time. We sang about it this morning. We sing about these things. We, we hear lots of scriptures about it. People like me who stand up on stages and give presentations or talks or sermons use this phrase all the time as well, faith. But what actually is it? I mean, this is a foundational thing. It's actually littered all the way throughout our New Testament as a very, very important idea. Here's a couple examples. Here's Paul writing to a church in Ephesus uh, it's found in what's collected for us and preserved for us in our New Testament. It's the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. That sounds really important to me, right? Saved through faith. Saved is something that I think we would probably want if there was a reality of being saved or not. We'd want to be saved, and it's through faith that does it. But what is Paul talking about? Here's another passage, Paul writing to a church in this place called Galatia, and it's recorded for us and preserved for us in our New Testaments, found in the book of Galatians is what it's called, chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. He says, in the same way, Abraham, who's kind of the founder of God's people in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his, what? Faith. Real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. Paul talks about being part of the family of God, being a child, a child of Abraham. And it's how do you get in? It's by putting our faith in God. That sounds rather important too, right? And we'll go to this last one here. This is a classic example. This can be found on Tim Tebow's face, wherever he is at. Or in, uh, you know, you see at sporting events. Like, do you guys remember sporting events? Like, yeah, at sporting events, people would hold up signs with John 3.16 or something like that. But this is actually Jesus speaking to a religious teacher about how to be a part of God's new thing that he was doing through Jesus, the kingdom of God. And he, he tells this guy named Nicodemus, Jesus says this, For God so loved the world, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten, or his uncreated son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, have life that starts in that moment and never, ever ends. And it's all hinged on what? On somebody believing in him. This idea of faith, it is foundational. It is so important. But we're probably, you know, we probably, if I would poll people, we'd have about 10 to 15 different answers about what faith actually is. And when I was just reflecting on this a couple weeks ago as I was starting prepping this series, um, 
I think there's a lot of, uh, we'll just call them counterfeit or less than versions of what faith is that we would all define it by or we've all experienced throughout our life that I want to say when we're talking about faith, we're not talking about these things, but these versions of faith are very popular in our culture. And I just want to sort of walk through these uh, different, uh, let's call them shadow or counterfeit versions of what faith really is. This first one, I'll just call it the just have more faith. And this one's found in a lot of different religious communities. Uh, and it's this idea that faith is something that you can quantify. It's something that you can have. And, and you know the reason why something bad is going on in your life, man? It's because you don't believe enough. You don't have enough faith. So you need to conjure up more faith, more belief. And then God's going to allow good things to happen to you. This is like quid pro quo Jesus. This is like you do this, and then Jesus does this, like rubbing a lamp, and he's the genie. And this, this, this one, I just got to say, this one breaks my heart and angers me. When I see this played out, um, because I know many of you have been in faith communities um, where I would say that the idea of faith, this version of faith, um, it's been abuse to you. It's made you feel less than. It's made you feel like you've got to conjure up something that's not real. And when you're in your darkest moments, you don't feel lifted up by the message of Jesus. You feel pushed down upon. So this idea that you just need to have more faith, brother. You need to have more faith, sister. Oh, man, this is something that I think is such a counterfeit version of the real thing but it's so pervasive, especially in our religious cultures in America today. Here's another counterfeit, or let's just say shadow version of what faith is. I'll just call it the faith. This is like the Christian faith, the, the uh, ancient doctrines and beliefs, and it's understanding everything about the Bible and what the church has taught about what's correct and what's false about Christianity. And we can all fall into this thinking that, you know, I... For me to have faith, I just need to understand everything. I need to collect all this knowledge about who God is and what God's doing in the world and what's correct and what's wrong so I can wag my finger at those people that I think are wrong or do whatever it might take. But we think that that's what faith is. It's the Christian faith. It's the correct things. It's about accumulating more knowledge that is correct and not having any gaps in our understanding of God. And I would say that it's really important to believe the correct things, to know the correct version of God. But man, we can make this an idol. Can I say that? <laughs> we can make this an idol, that believing every right thing, that actually gets in the way of what I think we'll discover true faith to be this morning. The faith is not actually the faith that we find when we look at the person of Jesus and the way he talks about it. Here's another version of faith, a counterfeit version of faith. I'll just call it the it'll work out faith. This is something I've seen so pervasive in our culture, especially since COVID-19 uh, gave us our first global pandemic since 1918, right? I mean, this is, it'll work out. You just got to put faith over fear, man. You just got to believe that the universe is going to take care of itself. And you just got to, you know, close your eyes and visualize the positive thing. It's the secret to everything. Just visualize the positive thing and then it'll happen. It'll ultimately happen. Just keep holding on, keep believing, keep having faith. And in what? They don't really know, but it's all going to work out. <laughs> And I would say that there's like breadcrumbs to truth inside of that, but I think that this leaves us with some empty answers. This leaves us on not solid ground, but shaky ground when we think that just believing it's all going to work out, this is what faith is. It'll all work out. Just believe the positive thing, it'll happen. It's, it's a shadow of the real thing. And this last version of faith, it sounds really academic, um, and I, I want to sort of break it down for us, but especially in my generation, millennials, uh, the generation coming after me, Gen Z, and some in Gen X, 
uh, in front of me. Uh, this is their version of what faith is. There's been some great studies about this is how people interact with God and how they interact uh, with um, how they should live their life in a spiritual manner. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism, which that's a mouthful of scholastic words, right? Moralistic therapeutic deism. But just to break it down in three simple ways, moralistic meaning that they think the goal of their life is just be a good person. Do more good things than bad persons, then you're a good moral person. That's the goal. Therapeutic, meaning that the goal of my life with God is for him to make me feel good, <laughs> for things to be good, like for him to send me down more hearts and more smiley face emojis from heaven and no more like tears emojis at all. I just need that good stuff happening in God. The goal of God is to make me feel good. And then deism, it's a way of understanding God. It's actually a really old version of interacting with God where think of it this way that in deism God was the clockmaker and made the whole universe and put all the systems in motion and started the spinning wheel but then he walked away and he has nothing to do with us today he doesn't have any intimacy with us he doesn't care about the inner workings of our soul and our life but he sort of walked away from it so this moralistic be a good person therapeutic God's there to make me happy deism but he's not really involved with the every inner working of my life that's a very common version of what faith is uh, in our time as well. And I would say that each one of these things are shadows of the real thing. They're counterfeit in some way. And if we'd be honest with ourselves, we could probably find ourselves living by one of these versions of faith often in our lives, right? We can all find ourselves living with some of these counterfeit versions of faith. But if faith is so foundational, and it's such a powerful word uh, I would love to look back at the source for us to take a better stab at it. Because I think what faith really is is more beautiful than these definitions. I think it's, more, uh, it's wider and more inclusive, and it's, it's just more uh, pungent than any of those examples could possibly be and powerful in our lives. So what I'd love to do is I would like to go to the source. I want to spend some time uh, with the person of Jesus and some of these accounts of some things that he did, interactions that he had with people where he called out what faith really was and how he responded to what faith really was. I think this will be helpful to us. So we're going to start uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, who was one of Jesus' uh, disciples. Uh, he wrote down and recorded a bunch of things about Jesus. Fun fact about Matthew, at one point in Matthew's life, he was a tax collector, and he was like an enemy of all of God's people. But God, or Jesus looked him in the eyes and said, come follow me. And Jesus included him in his mission, and he left his old ways, and he became a gospel writer recording the life of Jesus. And we get to read his words today in 2020. Isn't that kind of cool? But Matthew recorded this account of what uh, Jesus, this interaction that Jesus had, it's in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 8, and he, uh, we'll just pick up right here. Matthew chapter 8, here we go. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, said, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Now, a few things we need to understand about the context that we're diving into in this story that we're reading is that uh, Jesus interacts with a Roman officer. Another translation says he's a Roman centurion, so he's not just like a classic 300 soldier with a spear. This is a guy who's got 100 men in, under his command. This is a big deal in the Roman Empire's army. But another thing we need to understand about the Roman Empire and their army is that they were diametrically opposed enemies of God's people during this time. The Roman Empire was occupying God's people, the Jews, the land of Israel, forcing them to live under the Roman emperor's reign instead of God's reign in the way that they were called to live in the Old Testament. And so this is somebody coming up to Jesus who would be considered an enemy of Jesus and his people. Jesus and his 
people, the Jews, they would probably not even want to make eye contact with this Roman centurion because he is the enemy. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, oh, yeah, I, I will come and heal him. <laughs> it's just another little example of how Jesus was more concerned with br- building bridges to people that were different than him than instead of building walls between people that were different from him, right? But we see Jesus uh, say, I'm willing to come and heal him. And just before we move on from this verse, look at the way that this Roman centurion refers to Jesus. He calls him Lord. And Lord, was it's this powerful way of speaking to people in the ancient world. It was saying, hey, um, sir, you have an authority. I'm looking up to you. I'm not looking down to you. Here's this Roman centurion saying Lord to this poor Jewish carpenter, Messiah, healer, teacher. He says, Lord, will you come and heal my young this young boy who's my servant. Jesus says, yes. Let's move on to the next part of the verse here. But the officer said, again, that powerful way of speaking to him, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Now, I think it's important that him using the word Lord to speak to Jesus was not just being polite. He uses it twice in two interactions with Jesus. I think that this Roman centurion is saying, hey, I am recognizing Jesus of Nazareth That, hey, on the surface, you are poor, you are Jewish, you're a carpenter, which is low in the socioeconomic ladder. You've got all these things that don't sound like power and authority, but I'm recognizing that you have power that I don't have. I'm looking up to you, Lord. And he he even goes as far to say, you know, I think you could actually, you could heal this boy without even coming. I think you're that powerful that you don't need to step foot into my home. You can do this and be healed. And this, this man is speaking to Jesus, and he's saying that you've got this incredible authority that I don't have. You've got something that I don't have, and I'm trusting you to put your power and authority to help this young boy. He goes on to the next part of the passage, and he explains he understands authority pretty well. He says this, I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, come, and they come, and if I say to my servants, do this, they do it. He's saying, hey, Jesus, I understand authority. Trust me, I'm a man who's got it above me, got it below me, and it's like my whole rank and file thing in the Roman Empire. But I'm telling you, you've got authority that I don't have. You've got something that is beyond me, and I am looking up to you. I am putting my trust, my faith in you to heal this young boy. I need you to. You're my only hope, is basically what he's saying. And you guys, what happens next? I cannot speak boldly enough or speak loudly or clearly enough about how radical what happens next was in the ancient world, and it should be radical to us as well. This is what Jesus says in response to this Roman centurion. Jesus heard this. He was amazed, and he was turning to those who were following him. He said, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I mean, this is when Jesus takes the mic, and he just drops it and walks away. I mean, this was a powerful thing. You guys realize what Jesus was saying in this? He's speaking to a bunch of Jewish people in a racially charged world where the Roman Empire were the enemies. He's speaking to this crowd and his friends, and he says, you know what? This guy has got faith beyond anything I see from you guys. This guy has bigger faith than anybody I've ever seen in any of my journeys in Israel. This is radical. This was inclusive. This was world-shattering. Because this Roman centurion, he was the enemy. He was the enemy. We don't even mess with his kind. How could he have faith? Not only that, but he wasn't just the enemy, but uh, he was this guy who didn't know any of the right answers. (laughs) He didn't know the, the, the Jewish Bible. He didn't know all about the Messiah. He didn't know all the right things. How could he have this great faith? 
He didn't study at rabbinical school or anything like that either. How could he have this? But Jesus says, no, this guy, he's got the biggest, strongest, most beautiful faith that he's ever seen. And then what Jesus does next is Jesus shows us his response to this faith. And he says this, Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Because you believed, because you had faith, it has happened. Jesus honors this bold faith of this foreigner, oppressor, Roman centurion, and he heals this young boy. Because this, your faith that happened, because you believed it happened. But what is faith? What is he really getting at here? I want to take us to another passage in the Gospels. This one's written down by Mark, who is one of Peter's good friends, who is an eyewitness to all that Jesus did. And in Mark chapter 5, just to set the stage a little bit, Jesus was traveling with his crew, and somebody, a, a synagogue leader comes up to Jesus in like this panic saying, hey, my little daughter is on her deathbed. I need you to come to my house to heal my daughter. Jesus moved with compassion again, says, okay, we'll be right there. We're on our way. And so Jesus takes his whole entourage, and there's a huge crowd following him to go heal this uh, synagogue leader's daughter. And this was, a lot of people wanted to see what Jesus was going to do because synagogue leaders at the time, they were the rock stars of the ancient world. And so this was like a big cultural event in this little village. Huge crowd traveling to go heal this little girl. And then Jesus is interrupted in the most beautiful, beautiful ways. We'll pick up here in uh, Mark chapter 5. So Jesus went with him, the synagogue leader. He says, and then a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Just a little bit of a sidebar. Can you guys remember large crowds? That was nuts. We used to like go to places where there were lots of people, rub up against people, and we weren't wearing masks, we weren't freaking out. That was quite the time, right? Back into the story. And a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, what I want us to grab here is just the dire straits that this woman found herself in. I mean, we, we hear this, and we, in our modern scientific sensibilities, we, we think it's gross. Uh, we think this is just really, you know, improper. This is terrible. But, like, to dive back into the ancient world to think about this woman um, is just, it's, it should take our breath away. This woman, because of this bleeding, this disorder, she was completely cut off from society. She couldn't learn. She couldn't worship. She couldn't go to church, go to the temple and pray. She couldn't go to the market and buy food for her uh, at the normal times at all. She got the scraps in the terrible part of town. She couldn't, if she had family, she couldn't hang out with her niece or nephew, her brothers or sisters, her mother or her father, because she was considered unclean. And for 12 years, she tried to do something about it. She went to doctor after doctor, but instead of it getting better, we're told that it just got worse. This woman is in dire straits, and she just hears that this Jesus that's causing all this stir, oh, he's walking through town. And so she's thinking to herself, I'll do anything to get close to this Jesus. So there's this huge crowd that's traveling through town. And this woman, uh, we're told in the next couple of verses, does something very drastic. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Can you imagine how desperate you'd have to be? To think, oh, if I just literally get physical proximity to this person, then I will be healed. And maybe this will change my story. Nothing else has changed my story in my life. Maybe just touching this Messiah would change everything. And so in desperation, she reaches out to touch his clothes. And we're told next. 
Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Immediately, 12 years erased, and she just knew it inside of herself that something had changed, and she was freed from her suffering. And then what happens next is kind of crazy, right? At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him with just a little sidebar. That's kind of crazy, right? (laughs) To think about, like, having power that would be released from you to heal somebody else. That sounds like something, like, from Star Wars or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But Jesus had power, and he knew when it left him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? I mean, who, who, who just touched me? Who just took power from me? He asked the question. And so this huge caravan going to this synagogue leader's home, it just stops and it tracks because Jesus is like, hey, who was the one that touched me? I mean, this would be awkward, right? Jesus is like looking around, who's the one that touched me? And this leads to an interesting conversation with his disciples here in the next part of the passage. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? I mean, his disciples are like, everybody's touching you, Jesus. Like, it's just a big crowd. What are you talking about? But Jesus wasn't satisfied. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He kept looking around. And I imagine he's like sort of looking around this huge crowd, and this woman who had touched him is thinking to herself, I mean, it was me. Do I like, do I tell him? I don't want to be awkward, and maybe he's going to take it away from me. I just was healed. I'm kind of in shock right now from any of it. And like, what should I do? What should I do? But Jesus wasn't satisfied. And so the woman steps forward. And this is what we're told next. The woman steps forward. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, her healing, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Told him the whole truth. Now, I want us to think about this. There's a huge caravan of people moving. The whole thing stops. And this woman steps forward and says, yes, I'm the one that touched you. But I don't think she just told the truth about, hey, I'm the one that actually came and touched your cloak. I think she told him the whole story. I think she slowed down, and Jesus got down on one knee, looked her in the eyes, and, and, he, and she just told him the whole story, the 12 years of isolation, of feeling less than, of the abuse that the doctors had taken money from her, but nothing had actually ever changed. And she told him the whole story and all of her desperation and how she just reached out in hope, in faith, and trust that, Jesus, you were the one that could possibly heal me. And Jesus just sat there and listened to the whole truth, and I love Jesus' response. This is what Jesus said. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I love the word he uses to speak to this woman, this woman who had been isolated from her family, isolated from her culture, shunned by everyone around her. What does Jesus speak to her? He says, daughter. Oh, my daughter. He speaks to her. It says, you're in my family, and your faith has healed you. He responds to her faith, and he says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Oh, my daughter, your faith has healed you. But what is this faith that Jesus keeps responding to with compassion and mercy and grace and a new start and changing the story, changing the game of someone's life? What kind of faith is this? I want to take us back to John 3.16, that classic memory verse uh, in the Bible, right? You know, Jesus speaking, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, I think the problem with us understanding what faith and belief is all about is just found in that word believes. Let's go. And I'm going to get really nerdy for about three minutes here. Can you guys stick with me to get really, really nerdy? Even if you don't want to, just nod at me, please. We're going to get really nerdy because we're going to look at the actual original language of that word belief. 
Now, there's the word pistuo in the Greek, which our New Testament was written in, and then there's a census, which is the Latin, which is the way that I think most uh, English-speaking people, we think about the word believe. Now, a census is this idea that I, yes, I checked the box. I, I circle in the scantron. This is what the correct answer is. I believe intellectually in my head that Jesus lived, Jesus was a person, and that Jesus wants me to do good things or whatever it might be. Like, we, we circle in the scantron, and we like, yes, I agree. I assent to that being truth. And Latin is, that's how we think about belief. Like, I believe in Jesus. I agree. But pistuo in the Greek is actually what the, the word that's used mostly for faith and for belief in our New Testaments. And pastuo is a much more powerful, potent word than a census. Pastuo doesn't just say, I believe in intellectually. It actually says, I believe on. It's like I put my confidence in. I put my trust in this person, this thing. Pastuo is actually what we should be searching for and the way that we should be operating with faith. It's actually saying that I am not trusting my own strength, my own authority, my own abilities. I am leaning my entire life and all my confidence on Jesus. I'm believing in him, on him. Pastuo is what it's all about. Now, just to have a little bit of fun this morning, and you guys can say that you spoke some Greek at church this morning. On the count of three, can you guys say pastuo with me? All right, one, two, three, pastuo. Okay, one more time, and kids, you're not swearing, I promise. Uh, on the count of three, pistuo. One, two, three, pistuo. This is what faith is. It's not just believing in, it's putting our faith, our trust on. And so I'll say it this way. When we really want to understand what faith is like, if you want to understand what biblical faith is all about, it's not about understanding all the facts. It's not about just hoping in something. Faith is this. Faith is trust in a person, namely Jesus. Faith is trust in a person. Now, this is where we can get a little hung up, and I think it's the next logical question you might ask, but how do we trust a person that we can't see? I mean, Jesus lived right, but he's not here anymore. How can we trust a person? And I would just say this, that we trust a lot of things we can't see. Right now, we all trust the money that's in our bank account, that those numbers that we see on our phone or the digital banking, uh, we trust that those are like actually like dollars and change. Am I like blowing anybody's mind right now? Or are you like, this is crazy. Like there's actually a stack of cash that's actually my money that's in my bank account. We trust that even though we can't see it. When we go to the doctor and, and, or when we have to go under the knife for a surgery, we are trusting that our surgeon did really well in school. He didn't just get C minuses and scrape by, right? We trust that he did really well in school and that he had eight and a half hours of sleep and had a couple cups of coffee and he had nothing too much to drink the night before and he's like clear headed, right? We trust this even though we can't see it at all. We trust things we can't see all the time. And this is what faith is. It's trust in a person in Jesus. It's leaning our life on him. Um, I'll show you a picture of my son. This is Jack Lewis Larison. He is a little tornado. That's him, yes, rocking a Johnny Cash t-shirt, eating a green pepper like an apple, because that's just how he rolls, I guess. Uh, he's a year and a half and at our house. I was just thinking about this this last week. We've got this landing at the bottom of our stairs. It's like three big steps. And there's a window in the back of our landing that he likes to look at and he likes to look at our neighbors and the, and the big kids that are playing in their yard. And he looks over there. But when he gets bored, he just turns around off this landing. And he just walks towards me like this. And he just, like, takes a step, four steps. I mean, he would completely bust his head open if I wasn't there to just grab him. But he just looks at me and just walks like this. And just walks right into my arms. 
I describe like 75% of my parenting at this point, just making sure that Jack doesn't die. That's just the way it goes. I mean, it's like saving his life is what I do three times before breakfast. Uh, but he just does this. And he, he, you know what he's doing? He's looking at me and he is just trusting me that I am who I say I am and that I'm not going to let him fall. I'm not going to let him get hurt. And he just walks believing towards me that I'm going to catch him. I'm going to grab him and put him up to my chest and I'm going to kiss his head and I'm going to tell him, buddy, don't do that again. (laughs) Every single time. He's just trusting me in that way. And in the same way, you guys, this is what your heavenly father is inviting you to do, to trust him. Trust him that he is who he says he is and that he is there for you and that he loves you and he's got plans for your life and you can build your whole life trusting in his character. This is what it's about. Faith is not about knowing more things. It's about trusting Jesus deeply. So let me ask you a question to get things personal here. Let the rubber hit the road here. If faith is trusting Jesus, believing on Jesus and having confidence in him to lead your life, let me ask you this question. What are you leaning your life on? I mean, what are you putting the weight of your life on? What are you trusting to carry you, to catch you when you fall? What are you leaning your life on? Uh, we can often do this with our bank account, with how many zeros we have in the bank account. We can do this with our relationships. If we're married or we're dating or we're single, I mean, we, we can carry those things and say, this is what I'm all about. We can do our circumstances. If it's been a good week and I haven't had too many arguments and people at work have been pretty chill, then we can lean our life on that. But if not, it falls away. What it may be our role or authority, our job title at work, we lean our life on that. I think this is what I'm putting my trust in for my life, for my identity. But you know, the reality with all those examples is they all can change like that. They can all change a drop of a dime. I think maybe one of the great equalizers that COVID-19 has given the human race, all of us, we have come face to face with the reality that we are not in control as much as we thought we were. Isn't that true? There's a lot out of our control. What are you leaning your life on? What are you putting the weight of your life in? You know, there's, there's a freeing truth found in the New Testament, and it's this right here, and the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus in Hebrews 13. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All those circumstances in life, all of the titles that we can wear, everything relationally, it can all change. But who never changes? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and forevermore. So my friends, why would you lean your life on anything else but Jesus, if this is true? The one who never changes, who invites you into a relationship to bring hope and freedom to you. And let me say this, we don't have to just trust and believe that there's this God in the sky who is benevolent towards us. He's got the beard, but he gives us uh, more like sunshine than he does uh, lightning bolts. We don't have to just believe that. We can put our trust and we can trust this Jesus who never changes, who went to the cross for my sin, for your sin, in this incredible act of love and building a bridge towards us. We can trust that that happened and that's who Jesus is. And then three days later, we can trust that hell and sin and death couldn't 
couldn't even hold down his love and his power, and he rose victorious from the grave. We're not just like trusting in something that was written down for us. We're trusting in something that happened in human history that I get to be a part of and you are invited to be a part of. That's why we can trust in this Jesus who never changes. So why would you lean your life on anything else? Why would we do that? 